there, I'm Mickey Johnson, and you're listening to Leading by Example, a podcast where we'll explore how work shapes who we are, personally, interpersonally, and emotionally, in conversations with leaders about the ways they've evolved and the relationships that have driven those changes. Jill Macri is a founding partner at Growth by Design Talent, a recruiting strategy and services firm that specializes in helping companies achieve growth with quality. Previously, she was the director of global recruiting for Airbnb, where she helped the company grow from 150 to more than 4,000 employees in just over five years. For Jill, successfully leading at such a rapidly scaling company required her to scale herself just as effectively. Cultivating relationships with mentors and coaches was key to that process, as was soliciting and acting on a near continuous stream of feedback. Throughout it all, she also fell back on her duck-like abilities to be all calm and confident above the water while paddling furiously below the surface. She shared the unexpected source of that particular skill in our conversation, along with insights about training new leaders to align with company values and how to be authentic with your team without freaking them out when you don't have all the answers. Hey, Jill, welcome to the Leading by Example podcast. Thank you for having me, Mickey. I want to start first off with sort of a question that I like to ask everybody, which is, how do you think people you lead would describe you as a leader? That's a great question to start with. Let's see. I think that caring is probably the headline. What I've, what I've often heard is caring, selfless, leading with integrity, I think uh, just like a very human leader, I would say that that's kind of my my superpower is being me as a leader, which I think makes me more relatable and people able to like identify with me and also follow me more mm-hmm. easily. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to dig into the idea of just being human as a leader. I get the the sense of the feeling of that is really important, but I wonder what does that look like in practice? Do you have an example of something, some time where you feel you did that or somebody called out to you that that was important to them? The time that comes to mind is when we were going through a challenging time when I was leading the recruiting team at Airbnb in terms of just like the the growth pains of kind of becoming a mature company and having several reorgs and just things changing. And we kind of had gotten to that size where it was really hard to keep direct communication with everyone. And I started doing a series of town halls where basically people could submit questions and I would do it. I think it was monthly. I want to say it might've been quarterly an hour with the team, just answering questions. And I think it was a time when I didn't have all the answers. And as I said, kind of one of those typical, but kind of like awkward growth periods that happens in a, in a company's, in a company's lifespan. And, and basically I think that the authenticity was really what kept the team engaged. The fact that I was willing to just answer truthfully when I knew and when I didn't know, and also kind of show them my own vulnerability as a leader. And I think what I heard from many people in that period was that although they understood that the information wasn't perfect, they had confidence that I would share with them when I had something to share that my intentions were good for the team as a leader. Mm -hmm. 
For sure. That that vulnerability piece is is important, obviously. I want to talk a little bit too about kind of your background and where, like, how did you get started in leadership? Was Airbnb one of the first times that you were really leading at that scale or had you done it before in, in other capacities? I love this question because I think my path is pretty non-traditional, but I also, mm-hmm. I think that people have this kind of sense that you learn to be a leader at a, of a large organization, that that's something that you do through some kind of training and growth programs through your company. And that's absolutely, I don't think many people learn that way. So I managed people for most of my career. So from when I was you know, 16 and managed a pizzeria, I, I managed people and kind of had that muscle that I would say is more management than leadership. But interestingly, I joined a company called Backroads, an active travel company when I was 25. So they do biking and hiking tours, basically worldwide, mm-hmm. luxury biking and hiking tours, I should say. And you, I was a, a leader, a tour leader, and they have a phenomenal training program, which eventually that's how I kind of, my foray into recruiting was through Backroads. I, I started working and hiring and then eventually doing those training programs as well helping lead those training programs. But one of the things that you do when you lead a group would be 20 to 25 people. As I mentioned, I was, I think I was 27 years old actually. And a lot of the people who came on these trips were CEOs of companies, surgeons, doctors, they were all, they were all people at a you know certain point in their professional career. And you had to learn how to guide the group throughout a week And really there was a lot of a huge public speaking element to it. Every day there were several kind of talks that I would have to give in front of the group and hold their attention and give them confidence that I was going to be able to take them through this week and that whatever high price tag they had paid for that week was going to be worth it. And I was an integral part of that. And there were also really challenging situations where you have people out on bikes all over the world and there are accidents, there are things that happen, there's inclement weather. I led all over the world. I led in South Africa and I led in Asia. I led in parts of Latin America and and mostly in Europe. Point being that I really learned how to hold a group and kind of like understand the dynamics, have the EQ to understand the dynamics of 25 people and kind of move them through a week, the journey of a week make them feel taken care of, make them feel inspired. Again, the public speaking was a a big part of it. I think that that really was a a leadership skill that served me really well in my career. And also, I have to say the leadership skill of just radiating confidence when really you don't know what's going on. So the typical like duck on a water skill, (laughs) your little little feet are just paddling frantically (laughs) under the surface, but you look like you're sailing along. Which again, I I would say like leadership superpowers, I think, especially in scaling startups, that's really important. And I learned a ton there. I have talked to many people through the years and mentored people and encouraged them to do something if they don't, you know, know what they want to do next in their career to try and do something that gets them in front of people a lot. So they just get really comfortable with it and comfortable leading any kind of group. And then I think that skill set translates really well to then you know, leading a team. 
Hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah. What a, first of all, what a fascinating job to have, like, especially early out of school and stuff. But yeah, I, I do like the idea of just like getting in front of people all the time. I think for me, that was definitely journalism. I remember when I first started in journalism school and, you know, I went to Northwestern, which is like a very serious journalism school. And Mm -hmm. so basically your first class, you walk in and they're like, great, you have five stories to go write, like go do it. And and they were like real stories in the community. And so I remember just being terrified walking into some city council meeting or something like that and having to like walk up to people I didn't know and ask them for quotes. And it was awful. Yeah. After you do it 20 times and a hundred times and a thousand times, then it's just a thing that you do and you can do. So that's, that's really interesting. Interesting. I'm super curious too about this idea of like a duck on water. I love, I mean, I love that metaphor and I've heard it before and it's wonderful, but I wonder how that jives with the idea of being really human and vulnerable and honest. Because I think that's something I struggle with sometimes is when are the times where you need to just project confidence? And when are the times where you need to be honest that like not everything's great? And maybe it's not an either or, like maybe you can do both. But I think that's, for me, that's always sometimes like a hard line to walk as a leader. I I definitely agree with that. I think there's kind of two elements to it. One is just the ability to operate with imperfect information. So I think it's kind of like the duck just choosing a direction and sailing confidently in that way while still figuring things out along the way. And I think that's something that it, again, the multiple of my experiences, I've, I've had to do that. And I think it, to some extent in any leadership role, you have to do that, but really uh, committing to what is going to be kind of the long-term goal or vision and knowing that the steps along the way are not quite defined, but you can still inspire people to follow you as long as you're kind of like one step ahead of them in terms of figuring things out. So I, that, that, that I feel like there's not any dissonance. The other part of the, that I think about is just kind of sometimes sharing with people who are on your team that you're paddling frantically below the surface mm. really helps them relate and see you as a human leader and also like helps them understand that like that you don't have to have it all figured out or the expectation is that you don't have it all figured out. I think about like, especially in my role, leading recruiting at Airbnb, a lot of it was, I was probably more of the, the, the part you'd see above the waterline might've been more of what I showed to the business. And the part that you see under the waterline partially was what I would show to the team. So I think that's, it's kind of like, what, what elements are you sharing with what constituencies? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really helpful. And it's true. I think I, especially early in my life, I had a real default to everything's great. Everything's fine. I'm good at this. I got this, like nothing's wrong, but it's true that it can, it can be detrimental to your team because they think you always have it all figured out and you always have the answer. And I remember several occasions with our team where they would come to me and be like, so this SOW doesn't really have that much detail in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't know how we're going to do it. You want to help me figure it out? You know, and like, I think they were coming in hoping that I had some kind of like magic answer. And once I enough times was like, no, I don't know how to do this yet. Like, we just have to figure it out. I think they realized like there wasn't, there wasn't a right answer necessarily. And then you can enlist them to help you. I think it's almost like, the first step in being able to engage the team sometimes and delegate effectively is just giving up some of that, that 
I don't know. I don't know how to do this. So I'm like, yes, I'd love you to help me figure out how to do this. Or we need to figure it out together or we're not going to, you know, make it through whatever situation. Mm-hmm. One more thing I would like to mention about the backroads experience, because I think it was very key to, to leadership, to, to being able to scale my leadership later on, is that another facet of these trips is after every week you would get scored by your guests. So you'd get reviewed by both your guests and whoever your peer was on the trip, whoever you're working with. Um, and so you, you'd finish something and then you would immediately get feedback and you get feedback in different categories. And I remember one of them at one point was like, how fun was this trip leader on a scale of one to five or, and, and it was all these different elements, but it, and it could be really harsh, but it was also like amazing real time feedback that I just don't think I've never seen recreated in another professional experience. And what was great about that is it really was just this like constant tune up also at a time early in your career when I think you're more malleable as well. And it was a constant tune-up and really like looking in the mirror of how other people perceived me. And it was incredibly valuable. And I think that I can't think of another situation where you get that frequent and that they were anonymous surveys. So that frequent and that honest feedback on how your style is hitting people, how people are interpreting the way that you're acting after this really intense experience where they just spent 24 hours a day with me for five days. And I think that was something also in terms of just getting used to and really craving that, craving feedback that would help me get better. That I think is something that helped me as I had to scale myself at Airbnb in this incredibly, this incredible velocity. I think that was really key. Understanding how feedback can be really positive, understanding how to incorporate it and really seeking it out. Yeah. For sure. Yes. I think having an instinct to to seek feedback and then really the practice of receiving it, even when it's hard <laughs> in a good way and not taking it personally is so important and something I am still very much learning myself. I'm glad you brought us to Airbnb because I think that's obviously such a big part of your career and such a fascinating study being with a company, helping to scale a company from 150 to 4,000 people. And, And I love this idea of you scaling yourself kind of along with it. I'm curious, how did leadership show up there for you? Because it strikes me that you you were both leading your team and growing your team, right? Like the recruiting team, but you probably also had a lot of roles in sort of managing up or leading these people that were sort of sideways from you in the organization. And and obviously they're such impressive leaders there at the organization and, and teaching them how to lead, you know, especially in the recruiting process. It seems like it must've been kind of a, like a, forked approach, you know, or there are like a lot of different places where leadership comes in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I, I led my team. I also was one of the founding members and leaders of the core values council that mm. helped steer the values and make sure that they were being embodied and lived within the company. That was an interesting role in that a lot of what we did was help new leaders in the company understand how to make decisions in a values-driven way um, in alignment with the Airbnb values. You know, often people, leaders will come from other organizations where there's a different set of expectations and behaviors. And so Mm -hmm. how do you get a leader ramped really quickly 
on the culture and kind of like steeped in the values of, of Airbnb and help them to understand how, how those guide decisions and guide how they lead and act. And so that was really a very concrete way that I got to help lead other leaders and, mm-hmm. and it, it was incredibly helpful to them. Like that's not, it's not a program that I've heard of a lot of companies having. And I think it was really helpful for new leaders coming on to just have a partner who was really steeped in the culture and the values and the way kind of the way to get things done at a company and could take them through that. I think a lot of my mandate as a leader there came from just the confidence that the founders and leadership in general had in me that I was totally a hundred percent mission aligned. And that's one of the advantages, honestly, of being an early employee. A lot of places, I think that there's this, you were there when it was unknown. And so it's, it's a lot easier for people to believe that you're there for all the right reasons and, and really have that like faith in you. And obviously the relationships that you, that you make at a really early stage are key as well. And it was definitely a very relationship driven place. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I would say there was a lot of leading by influence. I think one of the advantages of the role leading recruiting is you actually get to recruit in a lot of the leaders. So you form this relationship with them when they're in a a kind of a vulnerable place, making this life decision of leaving a job and coming to another company. You're kind of their liaison, their ally. So what was really nice is that um, with a lot of the exec team members at at Airbnb, I got to know them really early on before Mm -hmm. they were even part of the company. And those having those strong relationships, I will say, was definitely part of the key to how I was able to be successful there. Hmm. Tell me more about the Core Values Council, because it seems like usually you're bringing in leaders for the way they think and the way they make decisions and the experience they already have. But in some ways, it sounds like you wanted that, but you also needed them to adapt to the values at Airbnb and the way that you needed them to make decisions. And was that ever a struggle for people? Do you have things that you needed to do to help them sort of adjust to almost a new way of leading in some ways? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think the the analogy we would always use is like you're coming in with your suitcase of tools and skills and we're hiring you for all of those things that are in the suitcase. We need all of those things. We appreciate them, but we really need you to unpack the suitcase at the door and maybe use those skills in a different way, maybe use them in a different order. So that was the analogy that we always would use. And I think something that was really powerful that we did there that now we work with in my consulting business to help client companies do as well is we projected this from before they were even, when they started as candidates in the process. So it wasn't any whiplash or surprise Mm -hmm. that there would be an expectation for them to operate in alignment with values and that we were hiring them for their alignment and potential, but also that there, there were unique ways that we did things at Airbnb. And I think they would hear that the interview process was pretty transparent in terms of like the wonderful positives and some of the challenges of working there. And so it wasn't like people came, came in and then all of a sudden we said, and we we're going to need to you know, operate in a totally different way, <laughs> but they really got it through the, through the interview process. And we actually had two of us from the core values council would 
the interviewers for all of the exact hires. So mm -hmm. there would be two members of the core values council spending quite a bit of time helping not only evaluating, like, are these people, do they embody our values, but also answering questions, being a resource, making sure they understood the framework that they were walking into. Mm -hmm. And so there was an opt-in process as well, which is, again, something that we try and help client companies do. It really you know, helps you attract the people who are going to be the most successful at your company and deter the people who might be wonderful leaders, but not thrive within your specific set um, of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, just to get employer branding geeky for a second. Yes, like absolutely. It sounds like you were doing a really good job of being very specific um, and very clear uh, about like what was going to be expected and not just what was great, but what might be hard or challenging expectations they were going to be so that people could both opt in and opt out. Yeah, exactly. Let's see, I want to talk a little bit more about kind of you and your personal journey as a leader. Was there a time that you would be willing to talk about where you kind of realized that your current mode of leading wasn't working and you really had to change something kind of deep in yourself to, to meet the new need? That's a great question. And... Yes. So there was definitely a time, there were a couple of times I can think of where I had to shift things. And I think they're just some kind of skills you need to learn as a company develops. And you're, so for example, and I you know, keep going back to Airbnb because I think in a company with growth like that, I was just constantly being pushed. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, it's like the race to scale yourself at the, at the velocity that the company is scaling and at the risk of not sounding humble, there, there weren't very many of us that went from leading when the company was small and continued leading a full a global team when the company was at scale. So like leading when it's 500 people and leading when it's 4,000 people are, are very different jobs. And to be able to scale yourself, to be able to do both jobs is, is definitely a challenge. I kind of have this visual in my head of like, being on a, a on a roller coaster going down the steep downhill and just like the wind like pushing <laughs> like my face being like whipped back and, <laughs> um but that was kind of how it was so anyway there were multiple things and there there were multiple times when i realized sometimes it was just this it was less about my core leadership and it was more about a skill set so it would be like wow i haven't had to do planning in a company of this size. I remember we hired our first CFO and really went through our first planning cycle. And that was new to me. I hadn't done it. And I'm really lucky to have an amazing friend and mentor, Anna Binder, who leads people at Asana. And she's just like an incredible human being. And one of the people I think I've learned the most about leadership from in my career and I remember she and I went on a bike ride and I said, I don't, nobody knows what the headcount forecast is for next year. And I'm supposed to do capacity planning for my team, but no one knows what the capacity of the recruiting team needs to be if you don't know what the headcount is going to be in the future. But there were these things that were just like skills and I, I hadn't figured out how to do it. And I just remember her saying, anytime when there's not certainty you can give them different scenarios, present them with three scenarios, and then you can, you can go from there. And it was this just piece of wisdom that like I've used 
I don't know how many times when there's an unknown, present them with scenarios, a couple of scenarios and, and help them understand the trade-offs between the scenarios. And, and I came out, I remember of that year's headcount planning. I remember actually feeling like, wow, I was one of the most prepared people when, or I kind of came out of it looking maybe uh, the most prepared and thoughtful, even though there were all these people who'd been at much larger organizations than I had in the past, because Airbnb continued to be like, it was always the largest company that I'd ever been at from like when I started to like when I left. Anyways, and that was one of those just kind of nuggets and framing that changed the way I did things in the future. So that's one example of just like, there's a skill or like a mental model that I didn't have. And often what I would do to supplement was go to a mentor or someone who'd done it before. I mentioned Anna because she just has like, beautiful, concise ways of looking at, looking at things. And I felt like they would shift my frame. I had a couple other mentors who could do that kind of thing. And an executive coach who really helped me with that as well. And then I, the second point I think of is actually when I kind of decided like, I need to change to continue to be successful here. And I, or I need to yeah shift the way that I'm leading. And I actually am not interested in doing that. And that was actually when I left Airbnb and it wasn't still a wonderful place. Still, I think like one of the best companies to work with, work for in the world, but it got to a size and I got to a level where the authenticity that I, that I, you know, was, was commenting on earlier is just a lot harder when you're at a certain level. So it's like director level reporting into C-suite. And I think that's a really challenging level when you're reporting into the C-suite, my team was about 150 people. So a lot of people and work, body of work to be responsible for. Um, and, and the company had grown to the point where what was needed from me at that level was no longer it, what I could really give authentically. And so like what was needed for me was kind of like a shift because I think that level where you're right below the C-suite you're holding a lot of messages. Like a lot of what you do at that level is hold messages that are coming down from the top and are imperfect. And kind of, you're almost like a shock observer Mm. for what the larger team below you needs to know in order to operate and be content in their day-to-day work and be effective. Mm -hmm. And I started to have a hard time being that shock observer with authenticity. And it's not to say, you know, I have a ton of respect for the exec team. They were doing great things. It's just, I think it's like kind of just a function of that level. And I've heard this since from a lot of leaders, my firm does executive search and we work with a lot of leaders at that level. And I think it is kind of like, there's a breaking point when you get to a certain size and stage of company where a different kind of leader is needed. So I recognize I would need to be a different kind of leader to be really successful in the next phase. And that's not the work that interests me or the kind of like the type of leadership that interests me anymore. And I really wanted to go back to smaller. So like essentially when I left, I, that was one of the decision-making factors. And then I started my own company with two partners. And now we have a small company and I feel like I'm back in the, in the authentic leadership. That's really where I, I want to sit and work. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for those stories. Those are great. And yeah, and that takes us to growth by design and like where you are now, are there things that you have learned 
from moving into the founder role about being a leader? Has your thinking shifted in any way in this process? Well, it's, in, it's kind of meta because I'm in a founder role and work with a lot of founders. Right. <laughs> we, we do a lot of work with founders. I don't think this is a new learning, but I would say everybody's a duck on the water. One of the interesting things that I think, especially when I was doing the helping bring in execs at Airbnb and these just like amazingly impressive people, and not just the ones that we hired, but the ones that we would talk to in the process, one of the things I realized is that Nobody has the perfect information. Nobody knows exactly what they're doing. A lot of people, most of us don't know half of what we're doing. We don't have the answers. It's really the skills that you have that allow you to be successful in um, different environments. And so I think I just came to an appreciation kind of comfort level. And this continues now that I work with a lot of super interesting companies and leaders and founders and also have my own firm and, and obviously like have a lot of confidence in the the quality and integrity of work that we do and also know that like it's okay to still be figuring things out because pretty much everybody is so i guess that would be especially in our world i will say like scaling tech companies i i that's kind of the the realm that i know i can't you know speak too much outside of that i think there are other companies where probably People are doing the same thing for 25 years, and maybe that's a different story. But in our world, pretty much everybody is still a duck on the water. And so I think a lot of what we do at Growth by Design is help. We are not coaches, but we will we advise or help people along in their leadership of their company. And I think just knowing that and having, having a sensitivity that everybody is kind of in that learning phase is, is really helpful in the work that we, that we do, and nobody has it all figured out. Yeah. And then in terms of being, in terms of being a founder, I think uh, one of the nice things about founding your own company is you can really set the, you can set the tone and the culture of the organization. And I think we all, all three of us, the, the partners and founders at Growth by Design, want it to be a place that we love to work every day and want to be able to lead in a way that's really authentic to us. And so we definitely have set up a culture and team structure that makes that possible. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you were thinking about creating a place that you wanted to work, like what was top of your mind? Well, I think the, the first thing is work with people who inspire me and are smarter than me. That was, that's always been something that I, that has pushed me in my career. And I would say my partners, Adam and Mike are both that in spades. We actually have a joke about like, who's more popular of us because they're just like, if I mention them to anyone who knows that, like, oh my gosh, I love Mike. He's so amazing. I love Adam. <laughs> you never get an unenthusiastic like response to anyone who from anyone who's met the two of them. So, anyways, or I definitely you. I will just it. say well, it's three-way tie. <laughs> I was gonna say I was like, how like yeah, like how can all three of you work with work with people who are smarter than you? But like, it is sort of possible, I think, with the yeah. three of you. Well, thank you. We have we we spike in different places, yeah. which I think is really helpful, but it's fun. It's like, we have that, we have that spark that, that come, we have conversations, we have that spark, we really spark each other. And I, it's funny, I see that, I see that in you and in your work. It's like, just like getting, getting excited about the collaboration. So I think that's mm -hmm. one thing. It just like keeps me, keeps me doing my best work, keeps me excited to do the work that I do. And I would say it's not just the, my co-founders, it's our extended team as well. So that's one thing. 
And then the second thing is what we work on. So we really have been able to choose, you know, the work that we want to do. And Mm -hmm. we are all really values aligned. We all really want to, you know, be adding value to the companies that we work with, but also like we have this vision of up-leveling the recruiting function itself because it can be spotty, if I'm being generous, Mm -hmm. (laughs) from a quality perspective. And we feel like it it's interesting because recruiting leaders now often have a seat at the table, but don't always know what to do with it. Mm. And so really helping them like own their seat at the table is one of the things that really gets us excited. So we run this recruiting leadership Academy that really the courses are meant to help recruiting leaders really own the seat at the table. And when they're there show up in a really, in a really strong way. So I would say the combination of the people and the work and the fact that like founding a company, you get to choose both Mm -hmm. is pretty incredible. I honestly don't think I will ever do anything else. I can't see right now ever doing anything else because having, having choice, having the locus of control over those two things is pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah, it's addicting. We we just caught up with some friends of ours who it's another couple, but also they ran a marketing agency and now they have a startup and we sort of were the, we pushed them to work together. They were sort of like, oh, I don't know, do we want to work with our partner? And so we're, we're always sort of proud of that because they've done really well. But we, anyway, we were talking to them the other day and they were like, I just don't think I can ever have a boss again. You know? <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, it's really hard once you get to decide those big things. It's, it's, it's really hard to go back. Yeah. And it's interesting in consulting because in a way you have like, it's kind of like the many masters or like many bosses, mm. but also what I love is that the client in the client, but the clients have like opted, they really actively opt in to working with you. So again, it's like you have this mandate to do things, have uh, one of the things that I remember from coaching was this phrase, courageous authenticity. Mm. And to me, it almost translated to like truth to power. And it was something that was really important to me to be able to keep that courageous authenticity and say the things that are hard to say. And what's really interesting with consulting is it's like the clients are like actually asking you to come in and do that. Like that's part of the mandate. It's not like, oh, there's a difficult conversation that I need to have with my CEO or my boss. It's like, oh, somebody's actually paying me to come in and speak to them about what they need to be doing differently. And that is really an an exciting part of it too. Yeah, for sure. Yes, one of our friends who works at a huge like multinational corporation one time said to us, consultants are the people you pay to come and tell you the things that you already know. Mm-hmm. I think I think basically to tell you the tell you the things that people have been telling the leaders but they've refused to listen to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you kind of need this person outside to come in and say it and for some reason that can be heard uh, in a different way. And, um, exactly. No, yeah, that's totally and, true. It is nice to have that kind of level of remove sometimes where you're like, I'm not going to get in trouble. Like, I'm not going to get in trouble if I tell this person this thing. So Exactly, exactly. (laughs) You mentioned coaching. I definitely would love to talk more about your experience with executive coaching. I mean, first, tell us us a little bit about just like, what was it? Who did you work with? How, How long was it? Yeah, so I had a really wonderful opportunity at Airbnb to have an executive coach through Airbnb who I then actually continued with afterwards and probably will be in touch with for the rest of my life. 
Vanda Marlowe is her name. She's fabulous. You know, she was developing the leadership training program at Airbnb at the time, and then also doing coaching for a select few leaders. And, you know, it was like the full process where we got to do a 360 and really dig into feedback from all sides, which was super helpful. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm someone who's like pretty, I think, relatively comfortable with feedback relative to other people I've worked with and really crave it. And so that was super helpful. And yeah, it was, it was really an unlock for me. Again, it was kind of one of those things when I think of like what, what enabled me to scale along with the organization, that was definitely key. And, and Vanda was definitely key to that. Mm. Yeah. When you say it was an unlock, like what did it unlock? Like, can you tell us about maybe a particular kind of aha moment where something shifted? I feel like every time we met, I had aha moments. I think it, it's the power of the reframe. I often think when you're in your own head about something and then just like having a, a really great coach who can kind of take the thing out of your head, show it to you, turn it around in a different way and make it help you solve your own problem. I feel like that's the power of coaching. Um, thinking about one specific thing or tool that was really powerful. I remember at one point I was having a real challenge with a particular, you know, other leader. And she had this framing where she said, when you are going into the room the, to have this basically difficult conversation with them, imagine yourself instead of sitting across the table and kind of trying to, trying to make your point to them, Imagine yourself sitting next to them and really like seeing their perspective and um, aligning with their perspective and then problem solving together in order to get to a shared goal. Mm -hmm. um, and even that framing, I mean, it sounds really simple. It is. It's something that I think about all the time when I'm, you know, going into conversations where I know that the person is not aligned with, you know, the, with what I'm thinking and kind of like a way to drive alignment as visualizing being next to them and really seeing things through their perspective and then asking powerful questions until you get to a point where you can start problem solving together. It was almost like the lessons were not specific to that situation. They could really be applied across. And so I found the coaching really powerful in that way. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm wondering too, like, because you've worked with so many leaders over the years and now you're continuing to work with leaders, are there... Are there qualities or ways of thinking that you see in repeated in successful leaders that you've maybe decided to emulate or things that you look for? So one thing that I see again and again that I, I try, we've already touched on, but I try and I, I, I'm refrained from using the word coach because I'm certainly not a coach, but try to encourage people to get out of is just like having to seem like you have all the answers. Like, I, I just think there's a lot of leaders who feel, and especially at the, at the CEO level, I get that. I get that they, you know, feel like their job is to have the answers, but I often see that at the sacrifices empowerment of the team. Mm. And it's kind of like holding it all. It's really hard to hold it all. So it hurts them. And then also holding it all doesn't allow your team to thrive. So it's really interesting because we help our lens is always from the hiring side and we're helping with hiring and we'll have CEOs hire these incredible people 
and then not empower them. And that's Mm -hmm. kind of, I would say the most fatal mistake. And I see it relatively frequently. Mm -hmm. So that would be one. Why do you think that happens? Well, I think it's the, again, it's the, you know, they don't know it all. A lot of founders are first-time founders. There's this enormous responsibility, especially like VC-backed companies. It's like you're you're almost, you're just like rushed forward so quickly because you also have the responsibility of like this enormous investment and pressure to grow and all of those things. So I think that uh, people are, a lot of people are just like in above their head mm-hmm. and, and some can admit it and have like, extreme learning agility. One of the things that I think was really unique about Brian Chesky and his leadership is like, I don't, I don't think there's anyone who has as high learning agility as he does. Hmm. He just like consume and absorb things. And like he, I mean, talk about scaling at pace with the growth of a company, like he would scale ahead of the company and like, he was like light speed ahead and just had this ability to learn and grow and absorb that I think is pretty unique. But, but it's, but I, but anyways, one of the, the, I think there's just this like enormous pressure to kind of present confidence in a way that's that somebody knows it all when you're at the CEO level. And then that can kind of come at the sacrifice of being able to admit vulnerability to those who could help you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's such a common problem that we see, not just at the CEO level, I think at Mm -hmm. at a lot of leadership levels, or even just, I know a lot of small agencies where it's a similar thing and you have sort of someone that just can't let go at the top and it it really hurts everybody. What are you still working on as a leader? Uh, What are your, what are your top challenges that you're kind of tackling right now in yourself? Oh my gosh, so many things. One of my challenges to be very candid right now is opting back into my leadership when it comes from like a team perspective. So I think, like I said, when I left Airbnb, I I was at this moment where I wasn't ready to be, or I didn't want to be the next level leader there. And then, you know, consulting for quite a while, our firm was very small, was just the three of us and very small. I consulted on my own for a while. And I think I was just like, I need to just manage myself and clients. Mm -hmm. And I think that I had a little, maybe like even reticence to step back into a leadership role. It was more like, I'm fine managing the work, but I know leading a team. And now I think I'm, I'm at the point where I'm ready to be doing that again. The courageous authenticity thing is always something that I'm trying to push myself forward on. And I would say specifically now with so we do a, lo- a lot of work around diversity and recruiting for diversity, diversity recruiting strategy, et cetera. And I would say courageous authenticity is more important than ever. And there's a mandate now in the wake of the, the kind of rejuvenation of Black Lives Matter and, and the social justice movement, where really we have license to say things that we might have tiptoed around in the past. Mm. But they're often, so, so an example of this is like, there are a lot of companies that we worked with who are really interested in boosting diversity. Uh, Like they have an authentic, you know, commitment to it, but there is a lot of deep work as I know, you know, at the leadership level that has to happen in order for companies to really embrace some of the the trade-offs that they need to make in the short term in order to have success in the long term in terms of having a very diverse workforce. And it used to be, I would be in rooms where I could hear 
I knew I would just know it's not going to happen. I would hear kind of like the verbal commitment, but just know that the the commitment when the rubber hit the road wasn't there. And I would kind of that, well, that's their thing. And they'll, they'll figure that out when they see it. We might nudge mm-hmm. a little bit, but not too much. And now we have license to really say, I hear what you're saying. And just so you know, in 18 months, you're not going to have moved the needle. And, and so anyways, I think that's something that, uh, and it's still, it's, it's finding ways to say that because often the subject is very personal as well as professional. There's like so many layers. I think it's, it's still tricky, but I definitely feel like that's one of, it's one of the things that gets me really excited about the work we do is that we do have a mandate to come in and say those things again. Um, so I'd say like courageous authenticity always takes work. It's not like a muscle that you build and you have it forever. It's like, you're always, I'm always working that muscle all the time. It's like, every time I do 10 reps, it hurts and it's like fatiguing, (laughs) but I know it's really important to work. So, so that one, that's what I'm always working on. That's great. I love that. I love that metaphor too. That's awesome. Well, we've, we've, we've talked about so many things. Do you have a question that you would like to ask me or something that you feel like we should still talk about? Oh, so I have a question regarding your coaching and, Mm -hmm. and either in coaching or just with leaders that you've worked with. Are there any, you know, I talked a little bit about like the reframe and some of just like the simpler tools or mental models. Is there anything that you find that that you use frequently that you find resonates with a broad set of leaders? Hmm, that's a good question. There's something, you know, I read about it in my newsletter recently. So I, it's something I've learned more recently. So I haven't had a chance to test it as much, but I'm finding it really powerful and just reshaping my own thinking. And I'm trying to use it a little bit with our team too, which is to really ask people to examine, especially in situations that feel kind of intractable, or it feels like your things are just so stacked against you that you'll never figure out how to do something, or you can't solve a big systemic problem, is to really force yourself to find just one small instance where that's not true, where like it has gone well, where something has worked better than you thought it would, or where you did manage to do the thing that you wanted to do even for just a second. And then to really like dig in and examine that and figure out like why, like what what was different in that situation? What really made that work? And I think it it resonates for me because the kind of coaching that I'm training in which is this very non-directive coaching. It's mostly about asking people powerful questions, as you said, right? And, and helping them find their own, their own good answers. And I think to me, like, that's one of the most powerful questions that I've seen use in coaching, I can use in coaching is like, you know, people are like, oh, I have to do this new thing and I have no idea how to do it. And it's really daunting or whatever. And it's like, okay, but you know, have you ever done something like this before? If we take it apart into individual pieces, or have you ever done the public speaking part of it before? Have you ever done the coming up with a new idea when you didn't have all the information piece of it? And then really getting them to walk through in a very detailed way, how exactly did you make that successful when you did it before? Um, and it really unlocks something for for people, I think, in part because it makes it seem less daunting. It makes you just realize that you have done it before. And so there's a confidence there. But also I think our brains kind of 
gloss over when we get overwhelmed and we just go like, oh, there's too many things. I can't think about it. And so there's really something powerful in like the, the really detailed, like moment by moment, step by step, like what did you do to get to this place that makes it like replicable in a different way? I love that. I, that's a great, that's a great one. And it, that, it reminds me a little bit about, I, we had an intern this summer and she asked me about imposter syndrome. Mm. And it's interesting because that's a little bit like the tool that I will use when I'm feeling imposter syndrome as I do days in the week. And it's really just think about, think about when I felt this before and have still been successful or wildly successful leaning back on those past successes, or like you said, giving, getting a bit of confidence, getting the, the bit of confidence to get you over the hump. And I love the idea of breaking something down from like a big, gnarly, super challenging problem to like some little things that you know that you can do and get some confidence on. Yeah. For sure. Well, <laughs> I'd like, thank you for admitting that you have imposter syndrome. Sometimes you obviously have a ton of experience and sound very poised and not only sound like you know what you're doing, but do know what you're doing in so many ways. But it's also, I think, nice to remember that, that all of us doubt ourselves at, at times and yeah, don't have all the information and haven't done something before. So whatever tools we can give ourselves to help get past those is really useful. Yeah, just just think of me as the duck with imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I super appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. So thank you for inviting me. Yeah, awesome. Well, have a great day and we'll talk soon. You too.